On this episode of This Week in Linux, we have a jam-packed episode for you. Linux Kernel 5.5 was released, and we have a ton of distro news from Solus, Elementary OS, Tails, Kali Linux, and Red Hat. And also a nasty pseudobug was found, but, and fixed. And we'll discuss this and let you know if you might be affected or not. Pine64 announced their new Hard Rock 64, and we got updates for the Pine Phone. Canonical announces their new Anbox Cloud service, and in app news we got new releases from Kdenlive and Raw Therapy. We also got an announcement from ProtonMail for a new calendar service, Proton Calendar. And speaking of Proton, we saw new releases for 5.0 of Wine and 5.0 of Proton from Valve. We've got a lot of hardware news as well with the Kubuntu Focus laptop, the NitroPad laptop, and a new hardware podcast from the Destination Linux Network. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network, and this is your source for Linux good news. Hello all, it's Eric from DLN Extend. You're listening to the best source for Linux GNU's This Week in Linux, here on the Destination Linux Network. Up first in the show this week, we have the latest release of the Linux kernel, which is 5.5. So there's a lot of new stuff in this one, and if you have a rolling release, you probably already have this update. If you're not, you will get it pretty soon, fairly soon anyway, maybe a couple months or so, depending on your distribution. Well, okay. It's, it varies quite a bit. Anyway, there's a lot of great stuff that's in this latest release with some updates for file systems like XFS, XFAT, and Extended 4. AMD gets support for uh, gets overdrive overclocking support on their Navi GPUs, so anyone who has an RX 5000 series will be affected by that. Thunderbolt 3 support has been improved for the latest release. Intel Tiger Lake has got improvements as well. And there's also better support for the Raspberry Pi 4, NanoPi, and Ugu's. AM6 boards, whatever. You know, ARM boards have some interesting names. There have also been updates to HWMON, which now allows you to be able to see the temperatures and monitor them for the NVMe drives. And also, there's been updates to Logitech G15 versions for 1 and 2. And these are drivers for a keyboard that has macro buttons, backlight modes, and built-in LCD screens and other things. It's one of those high-end Logitech keyboards. There's also some other stuff for like Chromebooks. For example, you can have Wacom voice support. So you can have your Chromebook listening to you all the time for letting you, you know, wake your computer up from sleep. That's a thing, apparently. Uh, System76 core boot users have ACPI driver support in the kernel now. So you can use your function key combos to change brightness and many other things. And also, there's quite a few things with this latest release. We're not going to be able to take about all of them. But uh, you can check out the link in the show notes to get the rest of the, the, the list. And uh, there's actually some really cool stuff coming in 5.6 because we already got news that USB 4 will be included uh, in the 5.6 release as well as uh, WireGuard. WireGuard has been, there's been a lot of talk around WireGuard for many years as far as getting into the kernel. And it is now starting to happen. So I can't wait for that. But anyway, Linux kernel 5.5 has been released and you should have it available in your distribution depending on your distribution repository structure. So anyway, yeah, Linux kernel 5.5, link in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as little as 0.7 cents per hour. 
That's right, not seven cents per hour, 0.7 cents per hour. DigitalOcean also has over 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. And if this doesn't sound great, you can actually get started with a $100 credit that gives you two months for free on DigitalOcean by going to do.co slash dln. Again, that's do.co slash dln to get a $100 credit for two months for free. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring This Week in Linux. And be sure to check it out and go to do.co slash dln to get your free $100 credit. Up next in the show, we're going to be moving on to some distro news, and we have a lot of distro news to cover. So first of all, we're going to start with Solus 4.1. So Solus is back in the news, and they have a brand new release which is nicknamed Fortitude, or codename Fortitude. And this release includes a brand new desktop experience, updated software stack, and hardware enablement. So this release was with 5.4.12 version of the Linux kernel. It doesn't have the latest version because that's what happens when a distribution releases slightly before the Linux kernel. You know, it's hard to put pull it in with like beta versus or release candidates and stuff like that. It's not a good idea to do that. So I assume because they're a rolling release, they'll probably get it pretty soon anyway. But let's go ahead and talk about what is in this release. And with the 5.4.12 kernel, it means they get the updated support for various different hardware like AMD Radeon RX graphics cards, like the 5700 XT, AMD Ryzen 3rd generation processors like the 3900X, and also Intel Comet Lake and Ice Lake CPUs. And the NVIDIA GPUs such as RTX 2080 Ti is also supported in this latest release. Mesa is also upgraded to 19.3.2 which introduces OpenGL 4.6 and enables the experimental ACO shader compilers along with improvements for the AMD APUs and Intel Iris Pro graphics. So the ACO shader compilers are like really nice improvements to the shader stuff for video video gaming, and it's just a better experience with these things. It makes it a lot more smooth to play certain games, and it actually makes some games even possible to play. So that's really awesome that they have that included now. Uh, Solus 4.1 is the first ISO release to also feature the Z standard compression with the Squash FX, FS images. And in addition to it being the first ISO to, to feature something else, it also features the KDE Plasma desktop. That's right. The KDE Plasma desktop is now one of the main desktop environments available for Solus users. They also have GNOME and Mate as options as well, with, of course, Budgie being their main flagship desktop environment because Solus team makes Budgie. So... There's a lot of different stuff in this latest release, including Plasma. So that's awesome. I can't wait to try it out, especially the Plasma version. But that's not to say that there's anything against the Budgie. I actually think Budgie is one of the best desktop environments, especially out of the box. It's It's got a fantastic out-of-the-box experience. So if you've never tried it, you be sure to do that soon because Solus is a really nice distribution and Budgie is a really cool desktop environment. So be sure to check out Solus 4.1 and I will have links in the show notes. Up next in the show this week is Tales, Tales 4.2. There's been a lot of new stuff in this release, so I'm going to talk about that. But first, before we get into that, if you're not aware what Tales is, it is a distribution of Linux that allows you to use a live distribution in a live USB form or a live CD, and it lets you use the system. I don't know if it actually still uses CDs. It might. It probably does. But anyway, CDs. Anyway. It's a privacy and security-based distribution that when you reboot the system, it has like it clears out the history and clears out the data and settings and stuff like that to be in a form incognito or amnesic, which is what the name of Tails means, the, inco- the amnesic incognito live system. So there you go. 
Because of the power of the privacy and security features that they have, there's also some issues that come from it. So, for example, the upgrade mechanism has not always been the easiest to do, and depending on what you do in the system, it might not be compatible in some cases. So you'd have to do manual upgrades that were pretty complicated in the past, but that's changing now. So Tails, if your version of Tails was several months old, you sometimes had to do two or more automatic upgrades in a row, or you and you could do only a limited number of automatic upgrades, after which you had to do manual, much more complicated upgrades, which created the issue of using Tails in some cases for people. But starting with 4.2, direct automatic upgrades will be available for all prior versions to the latest version, and you will only have to do a manual upgrade between big major versions. For example, upgrading from 4 dot x to 5.0 would require a big uh, upgrade which would be a manual upgrade so they said that they made automatic upgrades use less memory as well and they've optimized some of the size of the download when doing automatic upgrades as well they've also added new tools to the system uh, such as fmpeg to record and convert audio and video pdf redact tools to redact and strip metadata from text documents before publishing tesseract ocr to convert images containing text into text documents by the way I've not used Tesseract OCR, but OCR, OCR is really helpful. If you have a document that's just an image, you can use OCR to scan that image and put the turn all the text in the image into actual text that you can manipulate and search through. It's fantastic. OCR is a fantastic thing. Haven't used that one particular, particular one, but I do like the fact that it's called Tesseract because that's awesome. It's a Marvel reference. Anyway, moving on. Tails 4.2 has a lot of stuff that's in it, and if you're interested in checking it out, I'll have a link in the show notes below to check out. So Tails 4.2 the Amnesic Incognito Live system. Up next in the show is going from one security distribution to another, and we're going to go to Kali Linux. Now, it's a very different type of security distribution. One is to security to keep people out, and this is security to get into things. So Kali Linux, if you're not aware, is a pen testing distribution or a hacking distribution. So if you are in a pen tester field or whatever, you're probably using Kali Linux. It's one of the most popular distributions, period. And they have this default root user policy. So the default user is has privileges to use root and every aspect of their permissions, and they have done this for a very long time. Now, the policy changes now is that they're no longer going to be doing this, and they give some information as to why they're doing this. And it's pretty interesting. So here's the quote from the, from the blog post. A lot of the tools back when we decided to implement this policy required root access to run or ran better when ran as root. With this operating system that would be ran from a CD, never be updated, and had a lot of tools that needed root access to run it, it was a simple decision to have everything as root security model. It made complete sense for the time. I agree with that. It totally did make sense, and it still does make sense for the average pen tester, but unfortunately, a lot of people have been using Kali Linux because it got really popular because it's a hacking distribution. So it's like, you know, people look at it as like, it's cool to run, even though that's not its purpose. Anyway, moving on to the next quote. While we don't encourage people to run Kali Linux as their day-to-day operating system, over the last few years, more and more users have started to do so, even if they're not using it to do penetration testing full-time. When people do so, they obviously don't run as a default root user. Uh, Quick little asterisk here. I would say that people who are pen testers probably don't run as default root user, but people who are not aware that that's an issue probably do. Back into the quote. With this usage over time, there is the obvious conclusion that default root user is no longer necessary, and Kali will be better off moving to a more traditional security model. 
So the security model traditionally is to have a default user that is just a regular user with regular permissions. And then when they want to use uh, root privileges, they use sudo to elevate their privileges and then run whatever they want to with those elevated privileges. You can also just switch to a root user if your system installs a root user by default. Not all distributions have a root user by default. They just rely on sudo. But the ones that do, you can just switch to it and then do everything from there. So there's those options as well. But it makes sense that Kali Linux would do this because it's more of a security thing that they've recognized that there are a lot of people using it and not doing it. They shouldn't be doing it as a daily driver, just in general. Even now with this change, Kali Linux still says you shouldn't use it as your daily driver. I mean, there's the exception of if you're a professional print pen tester, it makes sense to do it then. But otherwise, there's really no reason to do it. If you are currently running Kali Linux and you're not a pen tester, reconsider that, please. If you are, at least update, update to having these default user not being root. So they say nowadays a lot of applications do not require root access. The tools and commands that require root access can now be ran with sudo, and, or sudo, depending on your preference. And it's an interesting that they made this, react, this reactionary change because they are not refusing to acknowledge that their distro is being used and they're using in a certain way. So, you know, there's a lot of times we look at distributions where they look at the the way that people are using it and have a philosophy that is this is how we work, this is how it's going to be, and this is how it this is what it is, regardless of what is happening. But they're reacting to how the people are using their system and they're doing it, they're implementing a new policy that gives better security for people who are incorrectly using their system. You know, let's begin if you're a print professional pen tester. They're, you're the exception to this. It's just mainly because Kali Linux has become a fad or a meme or whatever to use as your daily driver, even though you don't really know how to use it. That It's become that, uh, unfortunately. But at the same time, Kali Linux is a great distribution, and I'm happy to see that they're doing this because it provides a... you know, rec They're recognizing that this is how it's being used, and they need to add some better security model that takes in consideration this problem. So I applaud them for doing this, uh, although people should still not use it as your daily driver, provided that your daily job is not related to this. Up next in the show is Elementary OS 5.1 and the App Center for Everyone campaign. We'll get to that in a minute. So Elementary OS 5.1 is the first point release in the 5.x branch, and this uses Linux kernel 5.3 and has a lot of security fixes, app updates, and the latest hardware enablement stack, HWE, from Ubuntu 18.04.3 LTS. Anybody running elementary OS 5.0 will automatically get the update as a regular update to 5.1. Now for the App Center for Everyone portion. The App Center team has started an Indiegogo campaign to fund a week-long sprint in Denver, Colorado to do a huge upgrade to the App Center. So there's quite a few things that are great about the App Center and a few things that are not. So first of all, the first thing that's not so great is that when you want to pay something for the page, the page you want model, which is fantastic as an idea, but it requires you to put your your payment details in every single time, which is understandably annoying. So first thing they're going to be doing is a one-click purchasing using a secure wallet that will allow you to save your past payment details in a secure method, so that you don't have to have that annoyance anymore, which is great. So they've also done a new; they're going to be doing a new App Center dashboard. And they're going to be sandboxing everything as flat packs, so installations won't have to ask for your password anymore if they don't need permissions. So 
if an app that does need permissions, they can use the underlying system that will require user permissions. They'll use Flatpak's portals to communicate, which allows you to basically give permissions without giving all permissions via this Flatpak portal system, which is pretty cool. So it allows you to get, you know, some permissions that you need, but not everything if you don't need it, which is a great idea. Flatpaks, if you're not aware, is a universal app format uh, similar to Snaps and App Images, and they're great. I like them a lot. I actually like all three of them in a variety of different ways. So it's really cool to see that the App Center is going to be implementing Flatpaks, and I hope they implement all of it. They implement Snaps and App Images at some point. That'd be really cool. However, if they don't, uh, Flatpaks is still a good choice. Uh, I still would prefer them to do all of them, but because that'd be great to have a single app store that had everything available. Fantastic if they could do that. If not, still good, but that would be awesome. Anyway, another thing that they're going to be doing is adding the ability for developers to get their apps onto other platforms without losing the App Center's pay-what-you-want model. So this has been a big problem for a while. So they're making a new App Center authenticator, which will separate the payment dialog from the App Center app so that they can be put into other app stores and for other popular distros while keeping the pay-what-you-want payment model. Now, I don't know exactly how this is going to work, but in theory, this will be fantastic because if you can use KDE Discover or GNOME Software or whatever else and still get all the benefits of using the pay-what-you-want model through their App Center app authenticator, that has a lot of potential to help developers fund their projects and continue to work on those. Because one of the things, uh, it's, I'm actually really passionate about the uh, idea of giving back and uh, giving back to the open source community, giving back to the Linux community, and all kinds of. That's why I make the show, for example. And uh, so one of the things that I always saw as an issue is that a lot of people look at open source as it's free, so I don't have to pay. And that's true, but they take it as a sense of I shouldn't pay. And that's not necessarily accurate. While you don't have to pay, if you can, you should, because it's a benefit to provide the project for everyone. And if you can give them, one, it gives them motivation. It gives them a way to fund the development of it so they don't have to spend time on other things and they can actually spend time more on this particular project, whatever that might be. So it is important to give back. And it's a big, it's a passionate thing for me. So um, I just wanted to talk about this because it's kind of what the App Center, uh, this new App Center system is going to be doing by being able to do this payment what you want model on a variety of different other distributions or other different, it used to be just only available for elementary OS. They're going to try to do it for other distributions and other app stores. And I think that is just fantastic. So hopefully this works out great and I hope they're going to get funded. I mean, who knows if they're going to get funded at this point. It's only 99% funded at this point, but they, they still have 27 days to get it. Uh, so anyway, obviously that's a, that's a joke. They have 99% of the 10,000 that they're trying to get the funding goal. So they still, they probably will get it. Uh, yeah. If you'd like to learn more about elementary OS 5.1 or the app center for everyone campaign, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show, James Whitehurst or Jim Whitehurst of Red Hat will be the new president of IBM. So this is some big industry tech news that a lot of people, it's interesting because a lot of people thought that uh, IBM would be hurting Red Hat when they purchased it last year. But instead, it seems that the people who thought Red Hat might be influencing IBM were more spot on on that because they're bringing Red Hat's CEO, Jim Whitehurst, to be the president of IBM. Now, that doesn't mean he's the top of IBM. He's actually the, not the CEO. The CEO will be the top, and that will be Avrind Krishna. Sorry, Arvind. 
Arvind. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But Arvind Krishna will be replacing Jeannie Rometty, who has been led the company since 2012, and she will step down on April 6th to serve as executive chairman of the board until her retirement at the end of the year. Under Rometty, IBM acquired 65 companies and developed its $21 billion hybrid cloud business while advancing the business's AI. Uh, they also have a quantum, quantum computing department and blockchain efforts with IBM, and she was involved in that. So IBM's, you know, unfortunately, there's been some decline for IBM, about 26% while the S&P 500 surged 160%, and the NASDAQ composite index rose 257%. There's some issues there for IBM, but Averin is the right CEO for the next era at IBM, said Rometty in a statement. Uh, he, she says that he is a brilliant technologist who has played a significant role in developing our key technologies such as artificial intelligence, cloud, and quantum computing, as well as blockchain efforts. Averin also led IBM's acquisition of enterprise Linux business Red Hat, so that makes kind of sense that he he was fun, he was leading the as the acquisition of Red Hat, so. That's a good decision on IBM's part. Uh, so, you know, it makes sense that he would be the one to take over, the, take the reins from Remedy. So he's currently the senior vice president of the cloud and cognitive software department of IBM, and he'll be transitioning on April 6th to become the CEO. And in turn, Jim Whitehurst will be transitioning to become the president of IBM. So there's going to be a lot of changes happening in IBM and a lot of changes within Red Hat, I would assume. I'm not, gonna sure, I'm not sure if he's going to stay as a CEO of Red Hat as well. I don't know if that, how that works, but anyway, this is really cool because there was a huge debate about whether or not this is going to hurt Red Hat by IBM purchasing them. And in turn, it looks like Red Hat might be saving IBM because IBM stocks are going down and Red Hat stocks are going up and Red Hat has a lot stronger uh, base. And well, it seems like that was a good decision on IBM's part. So we'll see what happens, but Best of luck to Jim Whitehurst and Avrin Krishna. Yeah, if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to a couple articles talking about this in the show notes below. Up next in the show this week is that there's a security issue, and this is not necessarily a horrible thing, but not good either. The pseudo bug was found. It's also fixed, so it's not that big a deal, but uh, Joe Vinix at Apple Information Security discovered a nine-year-old vulnerability in pseudo, or sudo, switch user do is what that stands for if you're not aware. And it is, if you have PW feedback enabled in your Sudoverse configuration file, a user may be able to trigger a stack-based buffer overflow even if they're not listed in the Sudoverse file. PW feedback is normally disabled, though, at, but at least two popular distributions are using it by default. Enable uh, Elementary OS and Linux Mint both have it enabled by default. So if you're using either one of those distributions, you need to make sure that you have the latest version of Sudo, which is 1.8.31 or newer, depending on when you watch this. Uh, and this has it, they fixed, actually included. So if you upgrade to that version, you shouldn't have to worry about it being enabled by default. But if you are using that version and there's not an update, I'm not sure if there is one for either one of the distros, uh, but you can actually turn it off yourself. You can also check to see if you're vulnerable right now by running a certain command. I'll have that stuff in the, the show notes below. And you can also uh, turn uh, fix it yourself by editing the Sudoverse file and making a quick change, you know, in that side inside of that file. I'll have that information in the show notes as well. So be sure to check the show notes if you want if you are using Elementary OS or Linux Mint. And even if you're not, there might be other distributions that have the problem too. That's the only ones I know do. So you know, check the show notes below for more information about this issue. And yeah, up next in the show is some news from the Pine64 company. 
So first of all, they have unveiled the new Hard Rock 64 single board computer starting at $35 and is expected to ship in April. The Hard Rock 64 is built around the same 6-core Rock chip RK3399 chip that's in the older Rock Pro 64 board, and it's also the, the chip that's in the Primebook Pro laptop. It has two ARM Cortex-A72 cores at 2.0 GHz and four low-power ARM Cortex-A53 cores at 1.6 GHz. Although it's not mentioned in the specs, the image shows that the continuation of the presence of a GBE port, an HDMI port, and a 40-pin GPIO connector. And continuing features include the SPI flash, which continuing from the previous uh, Rock Pro 64, as a SPI flash and an empty eMMC socket, a micro SD card, an IR receiver, and an RTC, con RTC connector. So uh, this also includes wireless module for the Wi-Fi AC. It has Bluetooth 5.0 that's listed. It's not clear if that's going to cost any extra because the Rock Pro 64 did charge extra for that, but we don't know if that's included or not. Uh, we'll see, you know, in the coming weeks when that when they announce more information. They also said they also show like heat mounts or heat sink mounts are available on this board, and they do say that the board does run hot. So it's suggested and actually pretty much mandatory, they say, to ha include a heat sink. So there's that. Uh, pricing on this board is based on the RAM. So if you want a one gig board, it's thirty five dollars. A two gig board will be forty five dollars, and four gigs of RAM will be fifty five dollars. And they say that there should be compatibility with previous things using the Rock chip, uh, the Rock Pro 64 board. If you if you use something that was built for that, should be compatible with this newest version as well as things built for the Pinebook Pro, provided with a little bit of modifications here and there to make it work. So mostly compatible, if not compatible. So next up, we're going to talk about the Pinephone. So I'm super excited about the Pinephone. I can't wait to get mine. Pinephone has been shipping their Braveheart models, and this won't come with a proper OS, but it will have a factory test image based on post-market OS, so you can try out the phone, various features like testing if the touchscreen works and networking and speakers and other things like that, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to get mine. The Braveheart is model is something I've been trying. I want to. I just can't wait. I will also get a regular Pinephone, not necessarily the, Bra the Braveheart, but I want both because reasons. And because they're reasonably cheap. They're a $150 phone, and that's awesome. And the hardware in it is not necessarily that you know bad. It's, it's old hardware, yes. It's mediocre hardware in terms of today's standards. But for $150, it's pretty good hardware. So I can't wait to try it out. Uh, I look forward to getting my, uh, hard, my Braveheart model, hopefully pretty soon. Haven't arrived yet, but hopefully pretty soon. And there are so there are also some de development builds of various Linux mobile operating systems available for the Pine uh, Pine Phone that's on the Pine sixty four forum. So if you do get your Braveheart model, you could try various different things like Ubuntu Touch and Postmarket OS and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And they're also doing some new cases for the Pine Phone. So a lot of people look at the Pine Phone being super cheap and they don't worry about like breaking it or whatever. But it's also a good thing to have a case on your phone too because it just adds more stability. They're selling hard and soft shell cases, so this is really cool, and I'm glad to see that they're putting this much behind the Pinephone efforts. So yeah, I can't wait to get mine, and I can't wait to get, well, both of them, because why not? Uh, anyway, if you'd like to learn more about the Hard Rock 64 uh, sing single board computer or the Pinephone, we'll have a link in the show notes below for their latest blog post. 
Up next in the show, Canonical has announced their new Anbox Cloud service. Now, this title of this blog post is a little interesting because it's kind of confusing. It's Anbox Cloud Disrupts Mobile User Experience. That sounds like a bad thing, but, you know, whatever. So Canonical releases a new service, and it's called Anbox Cloud. This service is described on their page as a mobile cloud computing platform which containerizes workloads using Android as a guest operating system. This product isn't aimed at the consumer, but rather the telco operators themselves. The goal is to allow mobile operators to own their own branded distribution of apps, circumventing the need to be reliant on Google's App Store or Apple App Stores. Like cloud gaming services, sort of like Stadia or GeForce Now and etc., this is kind of like that, uh, but for applications. And I think there's also going to be some kind of gaming on them too. So the device's power and storage will become less of an issue, and the phones become more of just an interface in this kind of concept. The servers in the cloud handle the heavy lifting, which opens the doors to allowing more powerful apps and services delivered without worrying about the specific device a user has in hand, which also kind of eliminates some of the fragmentation issues that Android has, which it has a lot of, more so than Linux does, which is interesting. Anyway... So the website also states, Imagine users capable of turning any given smartphone into a gaming console, a workplace device, or even an action camera at the push of a button thanks to the cloud. This also opens up more powerful applications on mobile such as AR and VR, where a simple phone can be the interface and cost of getting VR into a user's hands. Uh, so that basically makes it a lot cheaper to get uh, able to use AR and VR stuff by having this, uh, the cloud do it. And I know the cloud is kind of like this weird, you know, fad term, but it in this case this is really it means cloud computing, making your device that you interact with physically not the main power behind the actual application you're using. So right now, telco operators have priority to demo the product. It will be interesting to see where this goes. Like Google, Stadia, Netflix, Spotify, Disney, and all those other places have these cloud services. And having Canonical take this as a make them their own offering is interesting, especially considering they're using Anbox. Because if you're not aware, Anbox is a way to run Android applications on Linux and in a kind of like a containerized structure. So it's cool because it allows you to use Android applications without having to use an Android operating system. So Anbox has a lot of potential. Now, what's really interesting about this is that because they're using Anbox and not making their own thing to do this means there's a lot of potential that they could use Anbox and improve Anbox for the rest of us. So even if you're not using the service, just by people and telco companies using this service, it will benefit desktop Linux as well as the other mobile operating systems. Like for example, Ubuntu Touch has Anbox support in an experimental way. And now because experimental, it means there's bugs, of course. And I, But I have tested it on Ubuntu Touch and it worked quite well. And there are limitations, of course, but it was surprisingly for being experimental, it worked that well. So having a company like Canonical back and Anbox means maybe there could be potential to help the Ubuntu Touch team with like UB ports, maybe Postmarket OS, Luna OS, etc., and able to get Android apps. There's a gap between um, being able to use these app, these phones and these operating systems, but not having the applications you need. And this makes it possible, in theory, that the, the, possi- the possibility of being able to do it and have this bridge of the gap could be much higher because of this service. So hopefully that's what happens. I don't know. But uh, I'm looking forward to see what happens. And I wish them well in this service because if it does help Anbox, I definitely will be benefiting from that. 
Up next in the show is Caden Live 19.12.2. This is the first app news that we're going to talk about. And this is a minor release for the 19.12 series. It comes with Qt 5.14 compatibility, Project Ben ability to sort subclips in chronological order. It used to not do that, now it does, which is nice. They've actually fixed a lot of crash issues, and they've enhanced the interface quite a bit. Lots of new stuff. There's also a lot of other things, like they've added support for opening clips from the command line. They've uh, fixed, like, cleaned up certain things about the timeline, and here and there, fixed some, you know, crashes on various different pro- like versions of like whether you have Q- what version of Qt you have and that kind of thing. And I also wanted to talk about this because it happens to be perfect timing because I'm actually releasing my uh, own video that I did for Self 2019. I did a talk at the Self Conference, which means Southeast Linux Fest. I did a talk on Caden Live. I've been meaning to release that for a while, obviously, because it was last year. So, yeah. Anyway, that'll be coming out very soon, hopefully this week. So be sure to check out the Tux Digital channel for that. And uh, tuxdigital.com is where we'll have the video for that. Uh, Be sure to check that out. I don't know exactly when, but definitely this week. So be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, this is going to be a really cool thing because I'm telling you about like Caden Live, how to like beginners tips and also some advanced tips, as well as how to speed up your productivity in Caden Live. Because I've been using Caden Live for a very long time, and I've developed workflows and custom, uh, you know, methods of how to, of how to get to super fast. As also, there's a lot of shortcuts in Caden Live that are really nice time savers that a lot of people don't know about. So I give you those tips as well in the video. So be sure to subscribe if you like to get information about Caden Live in the future. Up next on the show is Raw Therapy 5.8. This is a really interesting tool because it is an image processing tool that has, they, this latest release has uh, some really cool things that I'm not really fully sure of what it means because I'm not a photographer. Uh, but it, because of that, it does look awesome. So I asked on the Dale-In forum uh, what, what this means. And if you're interested in checking out, I have a link in the forum thread that gives details about what this uh, particular sharpening tool does because I don't really know, but the raw raw therapy developers say that it helps recover detail lost from lens blur. Now that sounds pretty awesome because if you have raw data, uh, you can recover the data from the lens blur. That sounds like a really powerful tool. So if you are a photographer and you're interested in checking out this particular thing, be be sure to do so. And also check out the DLN thread if you'd like to give your insight as to what this means and whether or not you use uh, raw therapy or dark table and that kind of thing. Definitely check out the DLN forum for the photography section. Links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the Kubuntu Focus laptop. Now, this is a laptop that is a partnership between Mindshare Management, Tuxedo Computers, and Kubuntu Project. So this is interesting because you're you're basically having a prepackaged Kubuntu desktop uh, with the uh, really high-end hardware. And uh, this is pretty cool. It also gives a small percentage of the purchase goes towards Kubuntu as well. So that's pretty awesome too. And this hardware is said to be meticulously vetted and tested so everything works flawlessly out of the box. This is the words of the people you buy it from, not mine, because I'm still testing. I'm doing a review of this laptop because I'm a big fan of Kubuntu. So obviously I was like, hey, could I get a review unit to, you know, review? And they were like, sure. And they sent sent me a review unit. I'm still working on that review. Uh, but it is a pretty slick laptop. You can check out the unboxing video that I did make. Uh, I'll have a link in the show notes for that if you're interested. Uh, but if you want more details, I'll go ahead and give you like a list of their specs. So they, the CPU is a Core i7-9750H with 4.5 gigahertz. 
The GPU is a 6 gig RAM GTX 2060 from NVIDIA. The memory RAM is 32 gigabytes dual channel DDR4 2660 RAM. Storage is one terabyte Samsung 970 Evo Plus NVMe. And the uh, monitor is a 16.1 matte 1080p IPS display. Now, what's really cool about this one, I saw people kind of confused that it was like a 1080p. They're like, why is it not 4K? But this is also 1080p 120 uh, hertz monitor. So that's pretty cool. So 4K 60 hertz versus 1080p 120 hertz. And it depends on what you want it for, I guess. Uh, but they also have an LED backlit on the keyboards and lots of really cool stuff related to the hardware. Uh, it also has user expandable SSD, NVMe, and expandable RAM. So you can make it even more powerful if you want to. So yeah, this is actually, the hardware is similar to the Oryx Pro from System76, and it's manufactured by Clevo, so it's like an ODM thing, uh, but it's really cool that they've done some polishing on the operating system, and they've also done some polishing on like the package overall, so like the there's a badge on the back of the laptop, and there's also a Kubuntu logo on the super key, which is great. I really like that touch. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to in the show notes to the Kubuntu Focus website as well as a link to the unboxing video that I made for it, uh, which, I, if I do say so myself, is a pretty good video. So, yeah, link in the show notes. Up next in the show is a new podcast that is on the Destination Linux network. It's basic, This is basically an ad, but I'm also on the show, so it's also self-promotion. Uh, it's an in-house ad, let's call it that. So this is about a new podcast that is a computer, hardware, and technology podcast. If you're interested in computer hardware and technology and just general technology, uh, it's definitely a podcast you should check out. It is called Hardware Addicts. First episode covers some stuff from CES, like the new GPUs and CPUs announced, and some various different devices like foldable devices or a new monitor from NVIDIA, or even Sony made a car that they showed off in CES. They probably aren't going to make it, but they made it for CES. Anyway, we talk about that as well. On Hardware Addicts 2, we talk about uh, gaming hardware versus cloud cloud gaming. We also talk about what makes a good mouse and what to look for in a mouse, depending on your preferences and stuff like that. Whether also we cover left-handed people and right-handed people and which one to look for and what kind of thing to look for when you, if you have that kind if you have that situation to deal with. And we also cover in Hardware Addicts 3, which will be coming out pretty soon. So this is kind of like a sneak peek to that one. We cover cooling systems, and we also do some like a camera corner where we talk about beginner guides to finding what the best type of camera is for you. So lots of great stuff in Hardware Addicts. And another cool thing about it is that we have this interesting dynamic of various different levels of experience. So for example, Ryan has had like over 20 years experience of hardware. He is super comfortable using hardware and uh, messing with it and taking stuff apart and putting it back together and all that stuff. And Wendy is also an enthusiast of hardware, but not to the same degree that Ryan is. And I am not at all experienced in hardware. So it's an interesting thing because I'm basically learning as I go with this show. And if you are not, an, and if you are experienced in hardware and interested in hardware, it's a, also, it's a great show for that. And if you're not that experienced, but still interested in hardware, you can join me in the journey from a hardware Padawan to a hardware Jedi or something along the lines of that. Anyway, if you want to learn more, I have a link to the show notes to check out hardware addicts and uh, yeah, also destinationlinux.network. Be sure to go there as well. 
Speaking of the Destination Linux Network, be sure to go check out the website at destinationlinux.network and also the new Destination Linux YouTube channel. We actually converted the old DL channel, which was just the podcast of Destination Linux, into a new network channel. So it has all the different shows and all the different things that you can have in one place. Go to check it out. It's destinationlinux.network slash YouTube to get to that. And we also have the Destination Linux forum. I mentioned that earlier in the show, but the forum is an awesome place to join the community. You can join the community, talk about various different things like the photo the stuff that I talked about earlier, as well as anything else, just something you you know, you know wanted to try in Linux, your experience, or maybe if you want to write some tutorials to share your knowledge of what you already have, you can use the forum to do that as well. The Destination Linux forum is a great place to check out. And uh, yeah, be sure to do so. I have a link in the show notes for that as well. And if you're not aware, there's there's a segment index for this show. So the segment index is where I put timestamps for each topic that we cover in the show. So if you want to jump around or you're just interested in something more and you know more than others, you can jump to those and then go back, go back to watch the rest of it. Maybe you don't agree with me the order I picked. You can pick you can make the order whatever you want. So yeah, check out the link segment index in the description and in the show notes. And if you'd like to contribute to the show or the Tux Digital channel, you can do so by going to com slash contribute or tuxedos.com slash Patreon, tuxedos.com slash sponsors. I'll have links in the show notes for all of that. So if you would like to help make this show possible, it's very, very, very appreciative because I, I, this is like, I love making this show and I love making the content on this channel and I love making stuff on the Destination Linux Network and the more people who are patrons of the channel make it possible for me to make more content for you. So if you do appreciate it, uh, embrace you all the content I like, but you can, you can just watching is fantastic. I, I, you, that's all you really need to do. I love it. Feel free to share the content as well. Click that like, like button, smash it if you want to all that stuff. But if you'd like to become a patron to help me make this content and spend more time making it, I would very much appreciate that. So you can find links to tuxedo.com slash contribute in the show notes below. Up next in the show is a secure laptop with tamper detection for Linux-based systems, and this is called the NitroPad. I mean, I'm not really sure if they want me to say it like that, but it just sounds fun to say it that way, so I did. It might seem like it's a tablet because it has the word pad in it, but it's based on the ThinkPad because it actually uses ThinkPad hardware to make the laptop. It's a really interesting concept. And uh, yeah, they have also other things that are very security-minded. Tamper detection through measured boot. Deactivated Intel Management Engine, which is nice. Uh, Pre-installed Ubuntu Linux with full disk encryption. And it also has another option. You can have pre-installed CubesOS. So if you want CubesOS for even more security requirements, you can. And if you're not aware, CubesOS is a really interesting distribution because it has like basically everything you do as a virtual machine. So everything is isolated into its own sections. Really cool. It requires a lot of hardware to do it, but a really cool concept. Uh, I might talk about this on a you know future episode. Talk about Cubes OS and like a new like a new you know any news related to it, or maybe even do a review of it if you're interested. Feel free to leave a comment to let me know about that stuff. They also have this thing called the Nitro Key, which is kind of like a security key through a USB, sort of like the Yubi Key. If you've ever heard of that, they have their own system called the Nitro Key. Have you ever heard of the Purism Librem Key? Basically, that's actually a Nitro Key with some branding on top. What's cool is that the Nitro Key comes by default as an included bonus if you purchase a Nitro Pad, which I like that. That's a cool idea. This is interesting how they're doing it because they're very focused on security, and I like that. So if you are interested in checking out more about the Nitro Pad, you can find links to it in the show notes below. 
Up next in the show, ProtonMail has announced an alternative to Google Calendar. That's really cool because ProtonMail is known for being very uh, privacy and security oriented, and Google is not, obviously. Having a calendar is actually kind of complicated, you know, keeping up to date with different devices that you have, and it's just kind of a hassle depending, like trying to like roll your own solution for calendar system. So it's really nice to have a company that is actually focused on privacy and security, like ProtonMail, to be doing Proton Calendar. So they say that the event title, description, location, and participants for every event are encrypted on your device before they reach our servers. So there's no third party, including ProtonMail, can see the details of your events. Only you will know your plans. Unlike Google, which they didn't say that part. After the know your plans, that's where they stopped. But I added the unlike Google, which, you know, tracks everything you do on your calendar. So while it's really nice to have a Google calendar in terms of like convenience, Eh, it's not so nice if you care about putting anything private on it, and this can change that completely. So I am super excited to try out this. It's currently in beta right now, but the Proton Calendar, if it's you know basically a competitor to Google Calendar, I am super excited to try this out. But there's no native desktop app right now, Linux or otherwise. Uh, it's just mostly a web-based or cloud-based tool accessible from Linux browsers, obviously. And also mobile apps for the Android and iOS are said to be in development uh, because it is still in beta. I'm still excited about it. I'm so happy to see that they're doing this, and I can't wait to try it out. And if you would like to learn more, I'll have a link to the blog post in the show notes below. Speaking of Proton, Valve made something called Proton for making Linux gaming easier, and that's based on Wine. Wine 5.0 and Wine 5.1 are the next topic to cover. So, Wine 5.0, that was a long trip, but hey, Wine 5.0, over 7,400 individual changes have been added, built-in modules of P for PE format, multiple monitor support, X-Audio 2 re-implementation, and Vulkan 1.1 support was added. And in five, Wine 5.1, support for using LLVM MinGW as PE cross-compiler was added, better reporting of error location for JScript and VBScript, support for relocatable installation of the Wine Lib tools, Ellipse drawing in Direct3D Direct 2D was added. OLE monikers improvements was, was made. And a variety of different bug fixes were done. So really cool. Wine development is constantly going, and they're make a lot, doing a lot of good effort to make uh, better support for Windows applications on Wine and Proton. And speaking of Wine and Proton, Proton 5.0 was also released recently, and it was rebased to Wine 5.0. Isn't it crazy how things like that work? Anyway, it was, was running on Wine 4.11, and now it's running on 5.0. This results in more than 3,500 changes being integrated. Also, now makes use of DXVK for Direct3D 9 game rendering by default rather than using the OpenGL-based Wine D3D renderer. So this actually improves a lot of compatibility with various different games, and it should uh, have DXVK run into issues maybe if it does happen. There is a new configuration option to toggle the implementation so you can go back to using the OpenGL version. Very cool, very, very cool. Proton 5.0 also has improved Steam Client integration, which allows more games relying upon the Denuvo DRM to be playable, such as Just Cause 3, Batman Arkham Knight, Abizu, and more. I'm not sure. It's A-B-Z-U. I don't have any idea how to say that one. Abazoo? I don't know. Abazoo. Abzu. Uh, whatever. Maybe one of those. F-Audio is also updated to 20.02, and there's also improved surround sound support because of this for older games. So that's really cool. And they're also working on better multi-monitor support 
for Proton. So super awesome. Wine, Proton, love both of them. And I'm so happy to see there's the continued development of both of them. So yeah, if you are interested in using Windows applications on Linux, then Wine is something you should check out. I have a link for that in show notes. If you're interested in playing games, thanks to Proton, making it easier to play those games for Windows on Linux, then have a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Touch Digital channel and the This Week in Linux podcast, then you can have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute at any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux as I'm a co-host of that show. In addition, I'm also now a co-host of the Hardware Addicts podcast that I talked about earlier in the show. So go check that out as well. You can check out all my podcasts available at the DestinationLinux.network website. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanel with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.